in some ways, that would be quite interesting going along to this course um, and to hear what um, David and others have to say. Um, because it is true that preachers, speakers, teachers, or whatever, all tend to, let's say, have favourites when it comes to God's word. Uh, not because we don't think other parts of the Bible are relevant or significant. All scripture is inspired and God-breathed. But perhaps different parts of God's word we find it easier to engage with. I have to confess that I find Luke's gospel like that. Hence one of the reasons why we're looking at it. Because Luke is the historian. He was a doctor, we're told. Um, but nonetheless, he was somebody who comes to recount the story of Jesus with a historical context. And it is, it's Luke's context, probably primarily, that Paul draws his inspiration from and his preaching and teaching and his letters from. Luke becomes one of Paul's colleagues, as we read later on in the book of Acts. And as Luke carries out his investigations and draws together the facts, not only of the gospel story, but the story of the early church, he does so with that clear intention that he wants to ensure that his readers not only hear about, but meet with the one who is the Lord of history, the one who holds history in his hands and the one who strides across not just the pages of of a book but through the pages of the story of humanity with the clarity and conviction and confidence of the son of god if you want just to open your bibles and turn to the beginning of luke chapter one verses that we've referred to in the past but important verses as we turn to look not just at the passage this morning but as we journey through Luke's gospel over these coming weeks and Luke sets down here as he does at the beginning of the book of Acts an introduction which is important to our understanding of what he's about here read let's I'll read to you again what Luke says Luke 1 and verse 1 many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that had been fulfilled among us are things that have been surely believed among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word with this in mind since i myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning i too decided to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught Luke here is not, as sometimes people would do nowadays, bashing or making fun of or such seeking to ridicule the other gospel writers. Far from it. He gives them and recognizes them as valid accounts, as insights into the life of Jesus. But he quite particularly says that he's written this account, listening to eyewitnesses, to people like Peter and other, the other disciples, and drawing together thinking through the story, investigating in a sense behind the scenes. We all, most of us anyway, like to watch these crime dramas on television and the investigations that go on. We are watching one at the moment in BBC4 and help my goodness if they ever actually find the person who's guilty, they'll be doing very well because they just seem to go around in circles. Well, Luke's not going around in circles. He's quite clear that he's got a destination and the destination is that Theophilus and people like us reading here this morning, that we may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And frankly, this morning, there's nothing else we remember for the next whatever period we're at that perhaps is maybe in some ways the most important thing in a day where we find it very hard to be certain about anything. And where in life, in deeds and actions, and I have to say through the media, 
we hear more and more of things that would cause us to be uncertain about whatever, you know, whoever this person may be, whether they're a member of the royal family, whether they're a politician, whether they're a clinical expert or anything else. There's so many questions and issues being raised constantly. We hear of fake news, but is it fake? Is it, you know? How can we be certain about anything? And I find that personally really sad. I was brought up in an era where things were reasonably certain. But that has gone. But we should be encouraged, as I've said in the past and other occasions, because the Bible was written, the New Testament was written into such a culture. We think the Roman Empire context of, of the Gospels and of Luke and the other writers. The Roman Empire was some monolithic structure that just sat there and well, everybody followed the rules and it was all very settled and established. But that was not the case, especially by the middle of the first century when these Gospel records were beginning to be compiled. This empire drawn together, the greatest empire the world had ever seen, basically covering the bulk of the Mediterranean Sea and further than that, including up to the very shores of Scotland and to the Antonines Wall. They didn't stay there for very long, but they got there. That empire was only maintained increasingly so through the first century by more and more control and regulation and the rise of Caesar. And I don't just mean Julius Caesar, Caesar, but the rise of a strong man who would make sure that everybody else was in their place. And through corruption and manipulation, that empire was to be sustained. Whereas in the past, although it was by no means friendly and always welcoming, it had kept people together in a more looser kind of way. So therefore, as I said again before, the Jews were able in one sense to practice their faith and deliver out their life within what had been the Jewish state. That, of course, was all to end in AD 70. But that wasn't just there throughout the empire. The harsh and firm and totalitarian hand of rule came down and persecution of all kinds of people, including, of course, increasingly Christians, became more and more obvious. Where once it was murderers, it was people who had blatantly done wrong, who were thrown to the lions, are put on the cross. Increasingly became those who dared to challenge what Caesar, whoever Caesar was for the moment, said. And it's in that context that Luke, and indeed all the gospel writers, and Paul and Peter and others write. And it's in that context that the early church grew and developed and extended to the very corners of that empire. So that you might know, he says, I have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And that, my friends, is vital in our world and in our society today. And, of course, that centers on Jesus, Jesus Christ. And we're looking this morning at the story, which Karen very helpfully introduced for us in our service, the section within Luke chapter 4. 
But of course, the preamble to that is very important. Luke is the one who gives us the most full story of his birth. It's Luke and, to degree, Matthew that we turn to for the Christmas story. Mark says nothing about it. John looks at it from a theological and philosophical viewpoint. The word that became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. But Luke particularly fills out that story and gives us the background both to John the Baptist and his background, to Mary and to the coming of Jesus and to the shepherds and then to the dedication of Jesus. And through all that story, look what happens. Look what happens. It's people who encounter God or one of God's servants, an angel. It's Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who has that angelic visitation. It's Mary who has the angelic visitation. It's the shepherds who have that angelic visitation. And it's Simeon and Anna in the temple, elderly folks waiting faithful for, faithfully for the consolation of Israel, who have the stirring of the Spirit, we're told, so that they know when Jesus is brought in to be dedicated that this is the fulfillment of the promise of the prophets of long ago. And in the record of Jesus and Matthew and Luke gives us the baptism and genealogy of Jesus, again from slightly different viewpoints. And, and just also pause there, you know, if there was a road accident outside in the main street today, or, or especially a day when there's people going about, the various witnesses would be called to give an account. They would all agree that there was a road accident, but they would each come with their own different perspectives because they were standing in a slightly different place or doing something slightly different at the time of the accident. But they would all together come and paint the full picture of the road accident. So the gospel writers coming with their sources and information, yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, come with that distinctive insight to give that full picture of what was happening. So Luke particularly reminds us that the Jesus who was born is indeed the Son of God and the Son of Man. And then we have the story of her being tempted in the wilderness. And the devil, using Scripture, hastened to act. We can all use Scripture and quote verses out of the Bible for anything if we want to, using scripture, seeking to cause Jesus to shortcut and in some way bypass what his calling was. But as we're told at the end of that, verse 12 of chapter 4, Jesus responds, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil finished all his tempting. He left him till an opportune time. The battle wasn't over, just phase one. And so he returns home. And you can imagine that. We've had, thank God, over the years, people who have come from this fellowship and have gone and served the church in wider areas of ministry, particularly over these last number of years. And we're very thankful to God. I mentioned one at the beginning that we, myself and John Fairford, had coffee with, coffee with Martin. The other week we've had Robert, we've had Alan, we've had other people who have been associated with this fellowship. And as is the case, quite understandably so, when the boy or the girl returns, they are often given the opportunity, especially if they're involved in something, to come and share that in some kind of way within the life of the church. 
And so here is Jesus, and he returns home. He went to Nazareth, verse 16 of chapter 4, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He was a good Jewish boy. That's what Luke's saying. He was, he was faithful to his background. He stood up to read. Now, he would have been invited to stand up to read, but he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He quotes, he reads from Isaiah 61 and also Isaiah 58. Although interesting enough, here in the gospel, the version that's recorded for it is from the Greek Old Testament. That's the one that Theophilus and others would have recognized. The Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into Greek, and that's the version that Theophilus would have understood. Little pointer there that when we're seeking to share the message, we need to do it in a way that people understand. He's given Isaiah. He didn't choose it, but he does choose this, one of the great messianic passages from Isaiah. We're actually going to see how that develops over the coming weeks as we look at Luke's story. But even reading those verses, I hope anyway, by this time, that will have rung a bell because only a few weeks ago we were thinking of what Zechariah and indeed what Mary said. Let me read to you again these verses from Luke chapter 1. And Zechariah saw, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servants, David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, speaking about John the Baptist, my child will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of the sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And here is Zechariah, a man who you the Bible, a man who you the Old Testament, and draws, and I mentioned this, I think this past, I think before it was taken into hospital, he, 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 we drew on these verses of how they're drawn from the vastness of the Old Testament. He you that when he saw the gift of his child and the purpose of this child, that all those threads, all those links, all those stories of the Old Testament that had been read out in the synagogue and in the temple down through those years, particularly through those years when it appeared as if God had gone in the huff and there was no prophet in Israel, that all those threads were coming together and being fulfilled, as did Mary. Mary wasn't a professional priest, but nonetheless, she knew the law, and so she sings. Earlier on in chapter 1, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices, and God my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. 
His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And these two songs that are recorded by Luke, by no one else, these two songs that are recorded by Luke that were spoken by Zechariah and Mary find much of their inspiration and direction and point in those verses that Jesus read out, reads out from the scrolls within the synagogue in Nazareth. And of course, down through the years, the church has speculated and debated as to what this means. And there has always been, as there always is, two sides to the story. Those who would say that Jesus here is speaking about, metaphorically, about God's release, that primarily, of course, it is. Zechariah says, the forgiveness of sins is about an eternal relationship with God. It's about being set free from this world and all its ills. It's about the year of the Lord's favor, which, of course, will be when the Lord returns in glory. And then there's the other side of the church, which has said, well, no, this is quite socially important and impacts on society, on justice, and how people live and how people deal with life. Freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, setting the oppressed free, good use to the poor. And it has a very radical social impact on the world in which we live. And me being a good Presbyterian, I would say the truth, of course, as usual, is somewhere in the middle. Of course it speaks of the forgiveness of sins, and we'll see that as we look at the Gospels. That is why Jesus came. The Gospel writers tell us he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for sinners, not to the well, but to the sick he comes. But he's also the Jesus who gave sight to the blind. And who healed the leper. And who ministered to the woman who had the bleeding that no one could do anything about. Those miracles of Jesus, those tangible signs of the kingdom's power, testify to who Jesus is. And that's why, when he finished reading, and can you imagine, as nobody happens here, folks sit back and nobody get their sweeties out. Remember Bob Robertson, bless him, remember Bob? He used to sit up in that balcony at the back. He was one of the few folk that sat at the balcony at that time. And, and you would hear the sermon was, was always introduced by the rustling of sweetie papers. But you know that man? Bless him. He was a character. I stood beside his bed the night he died. And I you in the soul that he sat there and listened to Mr. White and to me. And many times he had questions. He used to debate with Robert, didn't he? But he was safe in the arms of Jesus. You can imagine the folk here getting their sweets out. Settling down. Here's our boy made good. Here he is, Joseph's son. Joseph's off the scene by this time. Died. 
Oh, here he is. Oh, that's nice to see. Well, he's not, he's not quite tall, isn't he? I know the Bible says he wasn't appearance that we went to look at him, but I'm sure he's, you know, oh, he's done all right for himself. That looks quite a nice kind of, you know. But they weren't ready for what he said. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And as I've been saying in these wee devotionals during the week, and I certainly, as I said this past week, find them personally a tonic to moan. So as we week by week use the prayer guide, the UF prayer guide, and look at often quite familiar passages, it's so vital that when we read these familiar things, for most of us, I appreciate not for all of us, but for most of us, these familiar things, that we lose sight. We actually have kind of switched off our hearing aids. And, and we no longer hear just how vital and how significant this is. They were expecting some eloquent exposition of what the prophet Isaiah had to say all those years ago. Elizabeth and I and Gregor a number of years ago, not that long ago, had a holiday in Iceland and we were there at the end of September, beginning of October I think it was, and we were in the fisherman's mission which thankfully was more than just a wee hut and a wee hall. Um, it was a kind of guest house of I hostel kind of place, but it was, it was quite, quite comfortable and it was cheap, relatively cheap anyway. But in one of the rooms, one of the large rooms, a group of Jewish people met for their services. And it turned out when we were there, it was the Jewish New Year, seemingly. And they had a speaker, a speaker that came from either Canada or from the United States, a younger fellow, and there was a group of students. It wasn't a huge congregation, but there were a group of people who gathered, and especially on the Saturday, whatever day it was, when they actually had the festival, there was quite a crowd, because that, that was the day they had food. Uh, and there was quite a reasonable crowd. And I listened one night, one of the evenings, the door was ajar, and I heard this fellow speak. He actually was a very good speaker. And he began with the story of Adam, and the fall, and Genesis. And he journeyed through the prophets and the story of David, and everything else, and you were listening to him, and indeed my heart was being stirred, because it was a very, and he obviously believed in the Old Testament, obviously believed in the Old Testament, and he got to the prophet Malachi, or to the end, and then suddenly, in full flight, he stopped, because for him, there was nothing more to say, Thank God that God's final word is in Jesus Christ. The last word of salvation, the fulfillment of the prophets, the word that spoke and brought everything into being, the one who holds that history and is unraveling it and will bring it to completion at the end of times. This is the Jesus Christ who stands and reads from his word and says in me, all of this, not just those verses, all of this finds its fulfillment. If John Faithful was here, he'd be wanting you to say, Amen. So let's hear it. Amen. Are our hearts not warmed in a day where we can hardly believe what our politicians say? And I'm sorry, I don't just mean Boris. There's others as well. That when we meet with Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit takes from Jesus and makes him known to us through his word. <laughs> We can almost see a trust with our eyes, the eyes of faith, the Lord of glory, the man of sorrows, the prince of peace, the suffering servant, the child of Bethlehem, the one who hung on the cross standing and saying to us this morning, see this, it's all about me. 
And that's why it's important we know the Bible. And we know the counsel of God. And we know the one that it speaks about. It's not just information. That dear fellow, eloquent as he was, spoke about history. I love history. Spoke about history. But he didn't know what history spoke about. The one who is Jesus. And we're told as we move on that after he had said this, and we're not told whether more was said or whether he just sat down, maybe I'll just have sat down. That was a quick sermon, but you wish it was me that said that and then sat down. But we're told that all spoke well of him. You can again imagine the setting. Oh, wasn't that nice? But how fickle are folk? Because you see, right away we read, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And behind that, statement which to a degree was true that question you see the devil was still at work he loves to come along and that's why of course behind all these issues we're facing in our society ultimately it is diabolical and I don't just mean that a casual general phrase he's the father of lies but he's not stupid he doesn't just stand up and then say, well, look, I'm a pack of lies, but you're going to believe me because, well, no. He comes along and just says, well, you should, well, no, kind of, no, this is, you know, Joseph's son. Remember Joseph, that carpenter? There was always a wee bit of debate as to actually whether, you know, he was the dad or whether Mary had had a wee kind of fling before he was married. And, uh, and you know, he's, he's a, well, I'm not using the word because it might offend some, but he's a word beginning with a B. And Jesus, well, let's be honest, he doesn't play what many leaders within our world would play. You know, the smooth talking, you know, the, the well-presented kind of appearance, the silky words, pitching his audience, pitching his message to his audience just to kind of, you know. I mean, let's be honest, Jesus wasn't very subtle. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Probably shouldn't say this, but I'm tempted to say to my GP, it's more like nowadays, patient, heal yourself. Um, but physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do you hear in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum? We turned up this morning for some magic, from some, for some special sights. For you to do some miracles at our command. That's what we are here for. We are here for the show. We are here for the entertainment. We are here for the dramatic. We're certainly not here for you to tell us what we really don't understand, but what we don't like. That's often the case, isn't it? That's why people say, I don't like that. It's often because they don't really understand it. Ignorance isn't bliss. It's the road to ruin and then look what he says. Truly I tell you, no prophet is except in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only name in the city. Well, my friends, they understood that, you see. Wish I'd had the boldness to go in and read that bit of Luke's gospel to my friend who was speaking to his congregation of Jewish people. Through, well, that really would have put the cat among the pigeons. Do you think I'd have been welcomed? 
Here is a God who speaks. And yes, the one who is the fulfillment of the prophets and of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, King David's greater son. But his concern was always more than parochial, more than just a people. The promise given to Abraham that through him and his descendants all the nations of the world would be blessed. The calling of Jerusalem to be that city set upon the hill that would be a light to the Gentiles and a revelation to the people of the glory and majesty of God. You see, my friends, we've got a big God. And his concern and compassion and his understanding is beyond our comprehension. His ways are not our ways. These stories he quotes from the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, only too clearly tell us the kingdom is for the one who seeks it and who needs it. Always beyond the confines we like to make. And it was that, that non-Jewishness that so offended the crowd. We thought, us here, you should be patting us on the back. You should be telling us how well we've done to produce a son like you. You should be saying that we're doing really well here and that it's a great blessing and a joy and, 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 and a wonderful thing to be able to come back. And to, I, I'm glad we can understand that. I mean, let's be honest, one of these people I've mentioned earlier turned up in church and got up here and started to tell us we're all a bunch of wasters and really the gospel wasn't it for us but for everybody else. Would we like that? No, probably not be too polite to say too much, but let's say you'd all be telling me after, don't invite him back. And yet that is the radical God that we have, who breaks through our restrictions, who brings down our narrow perceptions, whose mercy is wide, and who reaches out to all those that he has purposed and called to himself. But the folk didn't like it. And look what they did. They marched him up to the top of the hill. And they weren't going to let him back down again. How easily and how terribly the human heart can be stirred. As Carden was telling the young folk. I was speaking with somebody just the other day who received tremendous insults and verbal assaults on social media because he had dared to just to bring a, a Christian perspective actually on meatloaf. There we are. And, and the, 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 the person responding to him hated it and actually said, you know, and basically, and I did read the message because he sent it to me, he says the real problem with the world is you, that I, the guy who had mentioned, who had, you know, I brought a Christian perspective of the story, the real problem with the world and with my life is you and your existence. Is that not what Hitler and the Nazis said about the Jew? And is that not what some within our society at least say quietly about Christianity? But Jesus walks through the crowd and went in his way. There would be a time where he would also walk through a crowd and would journey to the cross, carrying the cross. But this was not his time. 
You see, my friends, the Jesus we come before as we close is not one who's conditioned by the crowd, who doesn't play politics, who doesn't massage emotions and stir up hearts in order to get his way or to sell his product or his agenda. He doesn't need to do that, nor does he desire to do that. He is ultimately the eternal word that is eternally true. He walks through the crowd. And he calls us to take up our cross and to do likewise. And in our day and generation, to say that Jesus is the truth, to say that Jesus is the only Savior, to say that the Bible speaks all about him and that he is the only one in whom we can have our sins forgiven and whose life makes a radical impact in how we understand our world and society and the great issues in which we face, issues which, with due respect, I do bring up before us most Sundays. All of that will be seen as offensive. the world like the town of Nazareth did not recognize him who is like unto him no one for only he is the savior and the lord and we'll journey with him through the rest of this gospel over these coming Sundays Let's pray together. Lord, can I just thank you for the folks here this morning? Even just as we shared that passage, my heart's been humbled as we've sat for quite a long time and listened to your word. So I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ that together we're learning of you and from you. And we thank you for opening our eyes just that wee bit more as to who your son, our blessed Savior is and what that means. Who is like unto you? Well, oh God, there is no one like you. And as we started the service, so we end the service by bringing our worship, by saying sorry because we do have our perceptions we limit who you are. We like to keep you in your box and cause you to fit into what we think things should be. And sometimes, all right, our thoughts may be not that wrong. Other times they are. But Lord, even to do that is wrong. And so we say sorry. We ask for your forgiveness. And we pray, O oh God of mercy and truth, continue to release your love and power amongst us, your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.